Dr. Renee Yang will read our scripture for this morning. Today's scripture comes from Psalms, chapter 19, verses 1 through 8. You can find this on page 456 of your pew Bibles. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the worlds. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. This is the word of God. Does science disprove the Bible? So let me say a little bit differently. Um, uh, is the Bible incompatible with science? Or if one embraces science, um, doesn't one have to reject the Bible and Christianity or else commit intellectual suicide? That's a, that's, a, that's a pretty strong way of putting it. I've literally heard people put it that way. Oh, in order to believe in this Bible stuff and Jesus stuff, don't you pretty much have to commit intellectual suicide? Right? Um, you know, we already know, we've already learned all this stuff in science, and science is pretty much, you know, it's pretty much made all this stuff irrelevant. That's what we're t tackling today, okay? Um, in three parts, as you guys know, I like to do. Part one, science and the glory of God. We're going to take a quick look at this passage, and I have some really big things to say about science. Science and the glory of God. Part two, naturalistic evolution versus reality. That's the big, that's the big elephant in the room, um, that's, what we're really, that's really what we're wrestling with here, where we're talking about naturalistic evolution. If you've grown up in public schools, as here in the United States, you have been taught naturalistic evolution since you were very, very young. And, it's, and it is the reigning viewpoint of our society right up to some of our smartest people. And uh, we're going to talk about that in part two. Part three, um, I'm going to close with a meditation on the gospel, enlightening the eyes. Okay. The gospel enlightening the eyes. So let's go part one, science and the glory of God. Um, when you throw that, that, that passage up there, it says, this is what it says in Psalm um, 19. And, you know, there's a number of passages I could have chosen to, you'd think, so it doesn't, it isn't like the Bible directly um, uh, addresses the question of science. But what the Bible does do, it gives you a certain understanding about the natural world. <laughs> That's what the Bible does do. It gives you a certain vision about where are we from, where did all this stuff comes from, and I, and I chose this particular because it has a very interesting, and which is very relevant to the question of science. So this is how it's said in Psalm 19. The heavens declare, declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims. It's, it's just, it's, it says that the natural world, so the heavens, by the way, is now, we're not, now we're not talking about beyond this creation. We're not talking about heaven or hell. We're talking about the heavens in this Old Testament language is we're talking about the universe. 
We're talking about the sky. We're talking about stars. We're talking about all the galaxies, the heavens. That's what it means. And so all of the universe, what does it declare? It actually declares God's glory. That's the way the Bible looks at it. And it goes on to say the sky proclaims God's handiwork. And day to day, every single day, which is the making of the actual reality of the physical world that we experience, what does it do? It pours out speech. It actually says it's saying stuff to us. It's actually saying things to us. And this one I especially thought was incredible. And night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. All right? So their voice goes out through, out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So I just want to stop there. I mean, it goes on to um, talk about, well, let's just stop there for a moment. And, um, and what, is the, what, is, what, what is the Bible talking about here? Um, there is knowledge that the creation, that's the, how Christians talk. We don't just talk about the universe. We don't just talk about the cosmos. We're talking about the creation. It was made. It was made. It was made good by God, according to Genesis chapter 1. And what the create, according to the Bible, the creation is always pouring forth speech and giving you knowledge. What is science? <laughs> science is the search for that knowledge and speech. You understand? <laughs> That's what science is. And one of the reasons I chose this particular passage is because there's, a, there's um, this very, very powerful, and I would, I would say it is a prejudice. It is not a fact. It is a prejudice. It's an incredibly powerful prejudice in this time, in this generation. It's been around for, um, you know, for a couple hundred years at least, and it kind of ebbs and flows. But this idea that the Bible is deeply incompatible with science, that's very strange because it is passages that, like this which, which cause very, very devout men, brilliant men, <laughs> brilliant men at what, you know, at what, what in the modern times that we like to call the portion of the Enlightenment. These weren't secular guys. <laughs> These weren't skeptical guys who said, you know, really, I don't, I'm really sick of the Bible. <laughs> and so then let's go out into the natural world to figure out what's really real. That's not how they looked at the reality at all. They understood passages like this, and they said, actually, reality itself, speaking forth not just something about nature, but it's something about even the maker of nature. And so some of the men who sought and gave us some of the most incredible scientific breakthroughs and actually brought about this thing that we call the scientific rev um, revolution they were deeply devout men of God. That's what they were. And they would see these portions of the Bible, and they would see it really as a holy endeavor to go into the universe, to seek secrets of the universe, because the secrets of the universe is night to night revealing knowledge. It is, it is the heavens revealing not just things that we want to know that's kind of useful to make things, like kind of how we think of, a, of technology or solve problems. Actually, that's not, that wasn't the original motivation. It was actually a search for the wisdom of God himself. Now, the, the passage goes on. It has this kind of interesting portion of like how it talks about there's a tent, and then the sun goes forth as like, like you know, running in joy. 
And um, some people have even looked at that and they've read this in a very literalistic way to say, hey, we already know that the sun doesn't you know, wrap around and move around. Come, come on. <laughs> this, this is a, a silly and literalistic way to make the Bible silly. That's not what the Bible, the Bible is not fundamentally a science book, but the Bible is a reality book. You hear what I just said there? The Bible is not fundamentally a science book, but it is a reality book. What the Bible doesn't do is give you specific pronouncements about certain portions of the natural world, which we can do because God says, well, go, you were made in my image, go find them out. Go search what, go search me, as Psalm 19 says. It's one of the glories of science itself. But what the Bible does do is it can give us the meaning of science. It's interesting. Science can't give you the meaning of science, but the Bible can give you the meaning of the pursuit of the knowledge of the natural world that we gain through science. Now, um, let's, let's let's turn on this. Uh, let's turn on the the. I got. I have some. I have some important quotes for you. What I want to do, um, you know, some of the things that we're going to talk about. You know, you're like you're a pastor. You know about theology and the Bible and things like that. What do you know about science, Pastor? I actually know a few things about science. Um, I was pre-med in college. Um, I spent my share of time in a lab. And so I'm not like some guy in the humanities that knows nothing about science. I, you know, actually, you know, obviously I'm not anywhere near as good as you guys, but I'm not science ignorant. But more importantly, I know something about the philosophy and history of science, which quite frankly, most science guys don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and it's quite frustrating to me because they make all kinds of philosophical and religious statements and claims about science, which is now entering my turf. Theology, philosophy, the nature of reality, now you on my turf. Okay? And something that I am somewhat of an expert on. Right? I have doctoral level training on these, and I studied the really big boys on this. And so sometimes guys who really know their chemistry or their biochemistry or their physics, then they go, they start making all these claims, and they think they're only making science claims. They're like, you're not making science claims. You're really making religious, theological, and philosophical claims. And they're bad ones. And so one of the things I want to um, just first of all, just give you some quotes about where did science come from? And so science, as everybody knows, arose in Europe. It rose in the West. What was the dominant religious worldview of the world? It was Christianity. It was like everybody was, well, there's a few Jews and maybe a, one or two atheists here and there. But for the most part, everybody claimed to be Christian. It was absolutely the dominant worldview. And that is not, and those who have studied the history of science and the philosophy of science have, have shown and argued that is not an accident. And it goes back to passages like Psalm 19. So let's see if I guess, all right. So let's, let's start with Rodney Stark. Um, Rodney Stark, brilliant professor of sociology, a long time at University of Washington, now he's at Baylor. This is how he put it. Not only were science and religion compatible, they were inseparable. The rise of science was achieved by deeply religious Christian scholars. So this isn't just, I'm not just giving this to you. This is a man who has studied this. He's written like brilliant books on this. I'll give you another one. Because God is a rational being and the universe is his personal creation, it necessarily has a rational, lawful, stable structure. And here we go. 
It is awaiting increased human comprehension. You know what he's just telling you? Psalm 19. That's what he's telling you, right? This is the key to many intellectual undertakings. What does he mean by that? Look, if you need some magical, if you're like, we have no way of getting this because there's no, it is not rational, it is not lawful, it is not stable. If something doesn't have a stable you know, way that you can investigate it, the only way you can get at to it is like through magic or something like that. <laughs> That's the only way you can do it. And so if we're going to have some kind of like sustained intellectual undertaking, it requires that, there's, that, the, that the universe be believed in as rational, lawful, and stable. And do you know that most of the worldviews of the world did not, does not look at the world that way? <laughs> this arose in Europe through the Bible. And one of those is, as Rodney Stark puts it, it is the rise of science. I, mean, I want to give you a, another one. And this one is a, this is a, a little bit of a lengthy quote, but follow it. It's really, it's really terrific. And um, I'll just tell you exactly who, who, this is Peter Harrison. He was a professor, a longtime professor of science and religion. So this guy doesn't just know about science. He knows about science and its overlap with philosophy and religion. So he's an expert on the history of science. So here's how we put it. This is Peter Harrison. Could modern science have arisen outside the theological matrix of Western Christendom? He asked that question. Rodney Stark basically says no. He has a little bit of a, more of a nuanced answer. He says, it is difficult to say. What can be said for certain is that if a... It, it did arise in, that it did arise in that environment. And that, here we go, theological ideas underpinned some of its central assumptions. You hearing what that's saying? You have to have a certain understanding of reality. You have to have a theological understanding of reality, then we can have science. So the idea that science can, can, can just completely disprove the Bible, that's a very strange perspective, according to the experts. He goes on to say, those who argue for the incompatibility of science and religion will draw little comfort from history. That's the expert, not me. <laughs> what historical record also suggests is that insofar as modern science posits natural laws and presupposes the constancy of nature, that's the same thing that, that um, Rodney Stark said, it invokes an implicit Theology. <laughs> That's my turf. <laughs> there is an implicit, not explicit. It isn't said, but there is a, has to be a theology under the rise of science. That's what he's saying. <laughs> Most important of all, perhaps, religious considerations provided vital sanctions for the pursuit of scientific knowledge. He completely agrees there with Rodney Stark. <laughs> and arguably, it is these that account for the positive attitudes to science which have led to the high status of science in the modern West. You realize that? I just have to make a quick comment about that. I, I, I grew up, um, you know, I'm, I'm Korean-American, and my parents were not steeped in science learning, but I was. And it caused me issues, but one of the reasons is because they came from Asia. Now, Asians are chasing science, but they didn't grow up with the glory of science in its deepest understanding. What they're, what they're really interested in is they're interested in technology. Technology and science aren't the same thing. 
Technology is the use, use of science, which is probably what most people are interested in today. And it is very powerful indeed. But actually, the very pursuit of science is built on something deeper. And here's how he ends. The myth, that's how, how Peter Harrison ends it, this uh, quote, the myth of a perennial conflict between science and religion is one to which no historian of science would subscribe. It is a myth. So says one of the top, top guys, Oxford guy. Okay? Um, so I want to say, you can just sh uh, shut that down for a moment now, um, William. I want to say a couple more comments about science before I move um, to part two. Um, modernity. Now, some of you are like, whoa, this is like a, he a heady subject. It is a heady subject. <laughs> Who's attacking, who is attacking the credibility of the Bible in our society? Heady people. <laughs> Educated people. And we're afraid that they know something, we don't know something, and so many people are like, oh, okay, you know, so, so that Christianity can be dismissed before it's even examined. That's one of my, my, my real and serious objections to the way a lot of things happen in our society. Before the real serious intellectual claims have even really been seriously considered, it is being rejected without even being considered. I mean, that's not even intellectually fair. That's commonly what's going on. Now, so if some of you are not used to putting on your thinking cap going to church, um, I just want to say to you, shame on you. <laughs> shame on you. You want to show up at church and just like have a, have a second grader's theology? You can't use a second grade theology in this society. <laughs> you must put on your brain and engage the Bible with your brain because very, very powerful people are attacking it. So if you want to get to really know God, hello, God is not a stupid God for stupid people. <laughs> He's everybody's God. For the least ignorant to the most brilliant. <laughs> and so... Um, so I'm, I'm not apologizing here for we need to have a bit of a heady sermon. And I'm sorry, it's, it's a little bit harder than usual, but it's, it's, it's important. Okay? And so one of the things I want to say is modernity, and you, maybe you've heard this before, modernity is typically seen to built on three legs. One is science. Where do we get the truth? So some people think it's science. That's one. The second leg is how do we order our society? That's democracy. And the third leg is, how do we get money? <laughs> how do we make money? How do we become rich? It's capitalism. Those are the three legs of modernity. Every society in the world that haven't really quite wrestled with all three legs yet, guess what? Modernity is eating up their society. And they're having to adapt. It's forcing them to adapt. That's the difference between the West or even you know, countries that went from third world to first world like Japan or Korea in the last 50 years, literally. Last 50 to 80 years. And, but, so in the modern world, we think these are the only three things we need. We need science, democracy, capitalism. But what about things like this question? Why is this question of science and the Bible, or why is this such a hot button issue? Because there are certain profound questions that must be answered, and those three things can't answer them, including science. So, um, it is an unavoidable question, where did we come from? That's a question. The origin of life. Where did we come from? What the heck are we? And where did we come from? If you don't know where we came from, you don't know what we are. If you don't know what you are, you don't know what you're for. 
And if you don't know what you're for, you don't know what's right and wrong and what's purpose. If you are an ant, then, you know, the black ants can just kill the red ants. <laughs> and there's no such thing as justice or oppression. But if you're Germans and you decide to call the Jews rats, because they did, and then they murdered them, is that right or wrong? It's a very profoundly relevant question. Are black people and white people from the same place? Are they made of the same things? Or are they not? So you can't even know what's right and wrong. You can't know what your life is for, what our life is for. What is our all of human life, the meaning of it, it's for? If you can't answer that fundamental question, where are we from? That is why this question is very important. And yet, this is, this is, that's one of the reasons why this is going on. Is like, modernity thinks you, we only need science to find out the truth. But science can't quite answer that question. It thinks it's answered that question, but it can't. And it goes on. So there's the three legs. And if you ask me, you need a fourth one. You know what the fourth one is? You need, let's just put it this way, religion. <laughs> because you know what can answer the question of where we're from? Religion answers the question of where you're from. It is a religious question. And what do I mean by that? This, this issue of where are we from, it is an inherently religious question. And so I want to make an important statement about what is real science. Real science is that which is, um, you've put forward a hypothesis. That hypothesis must be, you have to be able to test it then you have to be able to observe the testing. And then, this is important, you have to be able to falsify the hypothesis. If you cannot falsify the hypothesis, you are not doing science. Guess what? On the question of the origin of life, tell me who can do these kinds of tests. Nobody can. Nobody can do these things. You cannot do that which is testable, observable, falsifiable. That's real science. If you're not doing that, you're not doing real science. But then you're making claims about what this is and the meaning of our life. Now you're doing religion. Like I told you, there's a lot of people, they're entering my turf. When I hear this stuff, I'm like, you're talking about questions about meaning, purpose, morality, source, destiny. These are theology questions. These are religious questions. And a lot of the people who are just saying, we have this answer, and we're, we're going to get to that. The answer is naturalistic evolution. Hmm? We have this answer. It's a deeply problematic answer. So they tell you that our society is saying that this is by science, but actually they're slipping you <laughs> religion. It is secular religion. Hmm. It's atheistic religion. Um, now let me say one more thing before we get to uh, this issue of naturalistic evolution. All right? It is a faith position that is being, um, that is being offered. It is very, I, I consider this actually deeply problematic and incredibly hypocritical of our society. They tell you they're not supposed to impose religion on you in the public schools, but that's exactly what they do. <laughs> that is exactly what they're doing. They're imposing atheistic, secularistic religion. How do they do that? Well, they tell you that science can give you this answer, which it can't. And then secondly, then what they do is they define science, because here's what science, Here's a second point about this. I just gave you a definition of what science really is. Science can only deal with natural causation. This in the natural world produces this. A produces B. 
we have this theory, A produces B, we can test it, observe it, and we have a control experiment. That part's very important, because the control is the portion that enables the falsification. And we're just talking about natural causation in the nature. So what has happened in our society? What's happened in our society is science has been a very powerful tool. We want science to be able to explain more and more things because then we don't have to fight about our different religious worldviews, right? It's nice, but it's also wishful thinking. So then what's happened in our society is, well, science has been really great. What? Maybe all of reality is nature. All of reality is natural. And then since science can give us the answers in the natural world, science now gives us the truth of everything. All, everything is natural. In other words, nature, not supernature. Super means above and beyond. I'm not talking about like Superman. <laughs> I'm talking about super as in above and beyond. Everything else, eternity, heaven, hell, God, even something like transcendent morality, it transcends nature. That's supernature. Every human, every human uh, culture has always believed that we live in nature and supernature. That nature is shaped by supernature. That nature is shaped by something above and more and beyond. But science is incompetent in that world. <laughs> science can only deal with nature, not supernature. So what's happened in our society is then go, well, science is really great. Maybe everything is nature. <laughs> and then, oh, now science can tell you everything. That's theology. <laughs> That's religion. So it's really interesting. Science can only deal with the nature. Well, then let's just make everything nature. Is that real? I don't think that's real. I think there's actually a very serious question there. Maybe there's more than just nature. And every worldview, every serious worldview, it is a very, very super minority position that reality is only nature. So how can science give you, if science can only deal with nature, how can it tell you these, it can't, okay? All right, that was a big part one. Let's go to part two. Let's go to part two. Naturalistic evolution versus reality. Okay, let's, let's put this back up there. That's the big elephant in the room. Now, I'm, today I'm not going to address um, some theories. Some people believe in what they call theistic evolution, that evolution happened by God, right? That maybe evolution was the way God, um, was the way, but it happened by God. That, that's not the theory. I'm not going to address that theory. Really, the real fight today is between God or actually the latest uh, fight is um, um, intelligent design. That when we look at nature, especially at this, even at the microscopic level, what we see is real evidence of design by a mind. <laughs> So some are starting to argue that, and a lot of the people in the scientific establishment, they're very angry about that, but they don't realize it's because they put in naturalism. Naturalism means everything is nature. So that's the one I'm going to take issue with today, naturalistic evolution, and I'm going to bracket this question about theistic evolution. But, so let's go to this quote. This is one of the world's most famous atheists, Richard Dawkins, professor, professor of evolutionary biology. I think that's where he spent most of his, his career. And then he shifted, he shifted later in his career to having um, a, a chair at Oxford on the professor of, he was a, he was a public, a professor of the public understanding of science. That's what he, he taught, the public understanding of science. And I was thinking, you mean the public misunderstanding of science? <laughs> 
I was like, Richard Dawkins is a proponent of the public misunderstanding of science because he doesn't understand the difference between religion and science. But here's, here's his, this, is, this is something he said. Um, there's a documentary called Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed. It's exploring this question of intelligent design and um, in our origin questions. And he says this, I mean, like, you know, I'm not making this up. You can watch that documentary, and I just literally typed this off straight from, from the video because I, I have that DVD. And I strongly recommend that you watch that. It, some of it's got a little bit of a jokey sense of humor, but it's an unbelievably serious subject. And I think it's incredibly well done and, and as accessible as some of these hard issues can be. But listen to what he says. It is completely right to say that since the evidence for evolution is so absolutely, totally overwhelming, that's what he thinks, hmm. nobody who looks at it could possibly doubt that if they were sane <laughs> and not stupid. This is the way he put it. So the only remaining possibility is that they are ignorant. And most people who don't believe in evolution are indeed ignorant. Richard Dawkins. Right. So um, I wanted to put that up there because the reason I wanted to share that because this is what a lot of people in our society believe. And is that real? Is that fair? <laughs> and I think no. I, don't, I do not think it's fair. And um, actually, in the, in the documentary, the guy who's running the documentary is, um, is a guy named Ben Stein. Have you guys heard of Ben Stein? You know, he's kind of famous for this uh, game show, Win Ben Stein's Money. But he's actually a really uh, brilliant guy himself. And he kind of plays this guy who's like, mm, you know, but with this deadpan sense of humor. But what he does is he goes throughout that document talking. He, he, he gives you that quote at the beginning of the documentary. And then he says, but wait a second. I talked to a bunch of guys, and they're not ignorant guys. <laughs> I talked to some serious, serious experts, and they do not agree with you, Richard Dawkins. And that's what the documentary is about. And so what I want to give you is some quotes. So I have issues. And so I want to give you some quotes. And then I want to, what I want to do in this next portion is then give you, I'm going to offer you some quotes. And then I want to give you three reasons why I don't agree with Richard Dawkins. Because of the nature of reality itself, because I love science. Why? Because science does what Psalm 19 says. I think all Christians should love science. But science isn't more than God. So, um, oh, here we go, let's go. Is the whole theory, this is, this, this is, there's a little question, that, that, uh, 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 a discussion that happens inside this um, documentary. And so, Ben Stein says this. Is the whole theory of evolution false or just certain parts of it? And this is what Jonathan Wells says. This guy has, a, this guy has two PhDs, by the way. <laughs> he's crazy. He has, a, he has a PhD from Berkeley in molecular bio, uh, biology, and he's a PhD from Yale in religion. All right, pretty crazy guy. Here's how he put it. Evolution is a slippery word. I would say that minor changes within species happen, but Darwin didn't write a book called How Existing Species Change Over Time. Do you guys know that? He wrote a book called The Origin of Species. He purported to show how this same process, that is, you know, um, <clears throat> natural selection, leads to new species. In fact, every species, that's the claim. 
And the evidence for that grand claim is, in my opinion, almost totally lacking. PhD in molecular biology from Berkeley. What happened? Oh, is that it? Oh, no. Oh, no. All right, I'm going to have to do it for my, for my notes. Um, Okay, that kind of throws me off. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. All right. Um, all right, Harrison, Harrison, Stark. Is the whole theory of evolution just false or just part of it? And then he goes on. So then he also says this. How does Darwin or Darwinism, how does Darwin or does Darwinism say that life began? Then Wells says this. He didn't know. In fact, nobody knows, at least according to science. That's honest. That's real. So Darwinism strictly defines starts after the origin of life and deals only with living things. Um, let's see. Uh, okay, let's, I guess we don't have the rest of it. All right, what I'm going to do next is, I will, what I want to do, I gave you that to you because I want to let you know there's a real fight. And it's actually, this fight is more hot than ever. I have, a, I have friends who have gone very, very far in science. One of my friends, um, he's, a, he's a Harvard grad. He did his undergraduate work deep in science, and then he did a bunch of work in theology and philosophy. He actually thinks sometime in the next couple generations, I mean, this is really astounding to me when he actually says, sometime in the next couple generations, this whole view of naturalistic evolution is going to fall apart. That's what he thinks. Because the evidence is mounting, 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 mounting to take it apart. And, all, and it's all the counter evidence. It's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. What I want to give you is like, look, I'm no scientist, but I want to give you three from the science that I've learned and some of the big guys, some of the big boys I've learned, three reasons why I, from science itself, not from the Bible, but from science, why I don't believe that naturalistic evolution can actually give you what, they th say, what it says it does. So the first one. First one, I want to offer you something called irreducible complexity. And I get this from a guy named Michael Behe. Have you guys heard of this guy? Michael Behe. Michael Behe is um, professor of molecular biology at Lehigh University. And he wrote this, and he wrote, he wrote a number of books, but this is, the, this is the main concept in irreducible complexity. If, if this kind of nat naturalistic evolution has to happen, it has to happen at the molecular level. You understand? I mean, if a bird, you know, changes a you know, wing, it has to happen even at a far more molecular level than that. So he takes it to the subcellular level at the structures, even below the level of the cell, inside of the structure, inside of the structure. <laughs> That's where he goes. And what he did was, and I remember reading this a number of years ago, he cites Numerous, I mean, there's just so many examples like this, but the, this is the one that stuck in my mind. He goes inside of this thing called an organelle. You guys know an organelle? There's a, there's a cell. And then there's structures inside of a cell called an organelle, like a mitochondria is an organelle. And then there are biochemical molecular processes that are happening inside at the very, very, like at the deep, at the low, at the structures. So then when he looks at those actual structures, he sees things like this. Well, there's something that basically is a pump 
this liquid has to go through this and come out on this other side. And when you actually look at it, you can actually see that it has to have this part, this part, as like all the parts of the pump. Actually, we know exactly how a pump works. And if you, any one of those pieces is missing, you, the whole thing doesn't work. And this is actually, it gets even more difficult. So you have this thing that's a complex thing that we know is a pump. It's got like four or five parts. Every single of them must work in conjunction. And then this thing must work inside of an even more complex system, or the whole thing doesn't, it all breaks down. So then he asks you this question, how could that pump have come about by chance, undirected, unintelligent process by nature, all at, that thing has to come up all at once. And then that thing has to operate inside the whole system. How could that possibly have happened by chance? The only way that that makes sense is like some kind of design, because it sure as heck looks crazy designed. And what naturalistic evolution says is everything has always gone from simpler to piece by piece by piece by piece. It has to evolve in that way. But then he gets this thing, that pump, he calls it irreducibly complex. But it has to happen all at once and inside the system all at once. How could that possibly, possibly happen? It can't. If you ask me, I've never seen anyone answer this. I've never seen all the other people absolutely believe, they think they've, that they just dismissed this. They all, I've never seen anyone answer that challenge. So if you're listening to this message, either in the room or on the video or on the podcast, I beg you, if you have an answer for Michael Behe's irreducibly complex challenge, I want to know it. <laughs> because I'm intellectually honest. If there's a real answer to that, I want to know it, but I've never seen it. So that's the first one, right? Let me give you a second one. The complexity of the cell. The complexity of the cell. Now here, here I, I got, I'm gonna take you through a discussion. This is also from, um, this is also from uh, the documentary. So Ben Stein has a discussion with a guy named David Berlinski. So they actually do two guys. This, this portion is David Berlinski. And uh, here, Berlinski has a PhD in philosophy from Princeton and also later postdoc in math and molecular biology from Columbia. So think, <laughs> this guy has a philosophy PhD from Princeton. He did postdoc. You understand what postdoc means? That means he's, he's more advanced than the PhDs. <laughs> from in molecular biology and math at Columbia, he's taught at, get, get this, he's taught Philosophy, math, English. <laughs> he's taught. He's taught all. He, he's like deeply, deeply expert on, on 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 sciences. He's taught at Stanford, Rutgers, City of New York, University of Paris. I mean, just the, the guy's resident. The dude is a genius. Right? David Berlinski. This is a discussion with David Berlinski. So, this is what uh, Ben Stein says. Darwin wrote the Origin of Species, published in 1859. He had an idea of the cell being quite simple. Isn't that right? And, and then Berlinski goes, um, yeah, well, everybody did. Everybody thought that the cell was simple. If he thought of the cell as being a Buick, you guys know what a Buick is? Who knows what a Buick is? <laughs> a Buick is a car, okay? It's, it's that, that car company died. So I was, I was like, oh, half my people won't know what a Buick is. So let, let me see. If he thought of the cell as being a Chevy, all right? What is the cell now in terms of its complexity by comparison? He's asking this to David Berlinski. You know what his answer was? Today, what we know the cell is, it's like a galaxy. <laughs> the, 
Evolution has to go from cell, cell, simple cells to more complex, complex, because we all, because, but we know one cell, one cell <laughs> is a galaxy, according to David Berlinski. That's going to evolve naturalistically without any directed intelligence or process? Come on. He asked another guy. If Darwin thought, so then he asked basically the same question to this other guy. This other guy he asked is uh, uh, Richard Sternberg. He's, he's an evolutionary biologist, all right? This guy also has two PhDs. He has a PhD in biology and one in system science, Richard Sternberg. So he asked this question. If Darwin thought a cell was, say, a mud hut, what do we know that a cell is today? Richard Sternberg's answer is, it's more complicated than a Saturn V. You guys know what a Saturn V is? It's like a rocket ship. <laughs> It's, it's, it's like one of the most complex pieces of engineering that's ever, ever been done, ever by man. That's Richard Sternberg. So first reason why I don't believe it, irreducible complexity, Michael Behe. Second, the unbelievable, the astounding complexity of one, just one cell. Just one cell. That's David Berlinski and Richard Sternberg. And the third one I want to offer you is... And I got this also from um, David Berlinski. DNA is not like code. DNA is code. <laughs> DNA is code. DNA, so when I was uh, younger, I, I remember reading an argument um, um, when I was really wrestling with this question. I was like, I was a teenager and I was like, what is this, does, does evolution, I, I was, you know, I really cared about this question because my faith was at stake here. And I remember reading an argument saying, well, for um, naturalistic evolution to happen, it's like throwing a thousand monkeys in front of a computer, and then they're all going to bang away randomly, and then out of a thousand monkeys, after you know billions of years, we'll get Hamlet. <laughs> that, that's, what's, that's what it's going to take. So do you think a thousand monkeys banging away randomly on a computer, on, on keyboard, can, can type out Hamlet? But actually, that is easier than what it would take <laughs> to get reality as we know it. Because you know what? Reality as we know it requires something more difficult than Hamlet. It requires a code. It requires a language. It requires a replicable language, and we already know what that is. It's DNA. It's DNA. For those of you who remember your, your high school science, you don't, you don't need PhD to do this. You only know high school science. Adenine, guanine, cytosine, thymine is the fourth one, right? right? So there's like the, the, the Lord took those four chemicals <laughs> and produced a code that replicates itself, and he made something far more complex and much more difficult than Hamlet. And so I remember reading that argument about the monkeys, and I was going like, wow, that's a pretty powerful argument. But then, later on, when I grew older, when I was in college and I was studying science, one of the atheistic scientists says, well, that's not a good argument because we're not talking about monkeys and typewriters, we're just talking the natural world. And, I mean, we already know the natural world can do this. And then I read David Berlinski later on. You know what he said? He says, of course that analogy works. In fact, that analogy is not even good enough. Because what you need is something like 215 proteins to have even the simplest, simplest, Cell. Back then, they just all you need is, is just some amino acids, and then it'll form protein, and it'll form life. He's like, no way. 
And he goes, and what is DNA? DNA, he goes, DNA, and this, this is the way Berlinski put it, DNA isn't like code, it is code. It is language. Those, those, those uh, letters have to align up perfectly, and it's happening in you and me all the time. Could that have happened by undirected naturalistic chance? No way. So those are the three that I want to offer you. The real honest question is, from a science perspective, where do we come from? Nobody knows. <laughs> so why is it so, why is it so, so intellectually foolish to be able to say, well, I think there was a great mind, and we call him God. <laughs> and he made it this way. He wrote something far greater than Hamlet. And I want to just close my message this way. You know, we have this thing called the gospel. The gospel is a, that there is a good news. Why, why, is it such, why is it called the good news? It's good news for everybody. Because in the human state, we're bumping around, we're lost. We don't know where we're from. We don't know what we are. We even fight over what's right and wrong. And then we actually have a deep, deep sense, because we have a sense of right and wrong written by our maker on our hearts. And then we stumble over this thing. We can't even do religion and science right without stumbling into pride, into lies, into darkness, great anger. And this is, this is the world. But the Bible, which is not a science book, but better than a science book, because it's from God. The Bible said that through Christ, he made all things. He made them beautiful and good. And into a set of people who are broken and lost, don't even know where we're from, don't even know what we are, don't know what's right and wrong, we're murdering each other and angry at each other and prideful each other all the time in this kind of way, he sent, he not only gave us the word, this word, the Bible, he gave us the word that became flesh, to heal our condition, to humble us from our pride, to give us even the, the, the possibility to be able to say, you know, we can admit that we don't know that. We can admit that actually we're not good people. And we're not good in all kinds of things, including when it comes to knowledge. And we're weak. And what we need is one to reveal the truth. We need one to be the truth. We not to show us a life, but to be the life that we need in our place. And that is the good news. I want to say this. I don't just believe, I don't believe in Christ because I believe in the Bible. You know why I believe in the Bible? Because I believe in Christ. I have met the word who has become faith, who has become flesh. He has given me more answers than I ever thought could ever be. And he's trustworthy. Now, I know that if you think science is going to explain everything, you're like, this isn't a very good explanation. But maybe you should start to find a different source for truth, a deeper and more trustworthy source, one that will not condemn you, one that will forgive you, one that will never lie to you. And then pour through the Bible and see what else is there. That's the appeal I want to offer. And one of the things I want to say is, Hey, Christians don't have all the answers about, you know, ancient cosmology, because nobody does. But you know what? We're also not afraid about it. 
because we've been given an answer. We think we've been given the answer. It's okay we trust him and hope you will. Let's go to his table now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you who made all things, you who wrote something infinitely more glorious than Hamlet, and yet even through science, we could begin to peek at your glory. We could get glimmers of your glory. And as we even, as reality, as creation begins to reveal some of true knowledge, it has made us drunk with arrogance and power and actually made us more lost than ever. But will we go to you? Especially if there's anybody in this room or listening to this message who doesn't know you. I pray that they would say this simple but honest prayer. Jesus, if you're God, will you show the truth of yourself to me? Will you show the truth of reality and of origins to me? And if there's anybody here who does trust you, and I pray that today's word, it wasn't an easy word, that it would sink in and help them come to the deepest trust in you. And I pray, Lord, that we could go forth into our culture, into our neighbors. We can have a bit of a punchy fight, but always out of love, out of servanthood, seeking truth, trusting we don't have to be afraid. And so I pray as we go to your table, will we be filled by you? Would you fill us with your glory and the truth in yourself? In Jesus' name.